0: Stanford University. The key to patient care is proper diagnosis. In order to couple the symptoms of illness as described by the patient with the signs or findings on physical examination, a knowledge of anatomy and particularly the relationship of structures to one another is essential. Proper examination of the abdomen requires an understanding of the structure and function of the abdominal wall, its innervation, and the relationships of underlying viscera. Dr. Snell will demonstrate abdominal landmarks and discuss the anatomy of the abdominal wall. And I shall demonstrate the application of such knowledge in selected patients. Dr. Snell. One of the first things that one must be sure is to that the patient is completely relaxed by having the arms down by the side. And then to generally just talk with him and ask him to breathe gently in and out. Would you do that for me? Just breathe gently in and out. Fine. Another first bony point that we should find is the manubriosternal sternal joint. This is found by running down the fingers down the front of the sternum until you come to a ridge. Opposite the ridge is the second costal cartilage. And from there on downwards we can count the costal cartilages without having to either count up the costal cartilages from below or attempt to count them down from above. It's important to remember that the uh, manubrious sternal junction is opposite the disc between T4 and 5 thoracic vertebrae. The next point I think that's useful is the zygo-sternal joint, which is down here, you run your fingers down the front of the sternum, and there is a depression at the lower end of the sternum, where the fingers drop off from the body of the sternum onto the ziphoid process. And here, uh, the level is about the level of the ninth thoracic vertebra. Now from that point onwards, we can follow the costal margin down on either side and this is the infra-sternal angle or subcostal angle and the lowest margin here is formed by the tenth costal cartilage. Now I think uh, a physician should realize that the anterior abdominal wall just doesn't consist of the soft underbelly down here but must realize that the abdominal cavity extends up under the thoracic cage uh, to the level of the diaphragm. Now the central tendon of the diaphragm lies at the level of the zephysternal junction. The right cupola arches up to the level of the upper border of the uh, fifth rib and on the left side to the lower border of the fifth rib. The reason for the right cupola being higher is because of the uh, larger size of the right lobe of the liver. I think we should now mark in the costal margin. We start up here at the ziphoid process and we come round the costal margin to its lower limit, which is the level of the tenth costal cartilage. We do the same on the other side, coming round to the tenth costal cartilage. And then we put in here the ziphoid process. The groove that we can see down the midline here, the slight groove or depression overlays the underlying linear elbow. The umbilicus is variable in position but usually lies approximately in front of the third lumbar vertebra. Now as we come down to the lower part of the anterior abdominal wall we should pulpate the full length of the iliac crests on each side starting at the back here at the highest point and then passing forward and we notice that the iliac crests end in front at the level of the anterior superior iliac spine and I'll just indicate the position of these spines on each side in that manner. Now towards the midline we can palpate down to the upper margin of the symphysis pubis that is the cartilaginous joint between the two uh, pubic bones and if we were to invaginate the scrotum with the little finger we should be able to feel the pubic tubercle. Now running between the anterior superior iliac spine and the pubic tubercle is the important inguinal ligament which is the curved lower margin of the apneurosis of the external oblique and I'll merely indicate the position of this ligament in this manner. So that here we have then the anterior abdominal wall extending down to the pelvis and above, beyond the costal margin to the level of the lower border of the fifth rib on this side and the upper border of the fifth rib on this side. So that the abdominal cavity is protected to some extent by the ribs and the intercostal muscles and the diaphragm whereas below here the soft underbelly just has the muscles of the abdominal wall protecting the viscera. Now if we ask this patient to gently raise his shoulders without using his arms, we can make out the lateral margin of the rectus abdominis muscle, and I'll just indicate that in this fashion. It runs from the costal margin down to the pubic tubercle on both sides. Thank you. And where this line which is referred to as the Linea Seminularis, where this crosses the costal margin is the tip of the ninth costal cartilage, and this is an important landmark. Now, if we're going to localize abdominal structures and be able to communicate with our colleagues, it is essential that we divide up the abdominal cavity into zones or regions. And to conveniently do this, we use these bony landmarks uh, that we have discussed. First of all, we use the subcostal plane. Now, the subcostal plane runs across the abdomen from one tenth costal cartilage to another. And uh, this lies at the level of about the upper border of the third lumbar vertebra. Then we come down to below to the iliac crest, and if you palpate the iliac crest on its outer surface and run it back for about two inches, you can feel a prominent tubercle, the iliac tubercle. And if we connect these tubercles across the midline in this fashion, we form the intratubercular plane, which lies at the level of the fifth lumbar vertebra. I think we should put in the right and left vertical planes. These planes arise vertically from the midpoint of the inguinal region. Now, when we say the midpoint of the inguinal region, we are referring to the midpoint between the anterior superior ilex spine and the midline. Now, if we take the midpoint is there and put a vertical line in, and I'll interrupt it so as not to confuse it with the linear seminaris. on either side. So that then we have two horizontal planes, the subcostal plane, which lies at the level of the body of the third lumbar vertebra, the transtubercular or intertubercular plane, which lies at the level of the fifth lumbar vertebra, and the right and left vertical planes. This enables us to divide up the abdomen into regions. The epigastric region being here between the costal margin and the subcostal plane there, the umbilical region here, and the hypogastric region there. And then on either side, we have the hypochondriac regions, the lumbar regions, and the iliac regions. This means we can say the stomach lies in the epigastric region. The spleen here lies along the 9th, 10th and 11th ribs in the left hypochondrium. The appendix lies in this region here, in the right iliac fossa, or right iliac region. The ascending colon here lies in the right lumbar region. Now, while we are talking about these planes and regions, I think it is worth noting two other horizontal planes that are commonly used clinically. The first is the transpyloric plane and the transpyloric plane runs across at the level of the tip of the ninth costal cartilage. Now, we don't have to bother to count down the cartilages. All we have to do is, again, ask the patient to raise his shoulders so we can feel the lateral margin of the rectus, in other words, the linear semilunaris, and where this crosses the costal margin, we know that to be the tip of the ninth costal cartilage. And this lies at the level of the first lumbar vertebra. So this is the transpyloric plane going across here. When we say Transpyloric, it infers that it goes through the pylorus, but I might remind you that it goes through the duodenal junction, it goes through the neck of the pancreas, and it goes through the higher of both kidneys on either side. It's a useful clinical plane. Now down here, we have another plane called the intercrystal plane, and this runs between the highest points of the iliac crests. And we can indicate it here in this fashion, running across. And this lies, you notice, above the interjubercular plane. The interjubercular plane uh, is opposite the body of the fifth lumbar vertebra, and the intercrystal plane lies opposite the body of the fourth lumbar vertebra. Now, can we mark on the anterior abdominal wall the viscera contained within the abdominal cavity? The answer is we can, but of course, uh, the position varies from one individual to another and in the same individual from one time to another depending on the contents of the stomach for example and the contents of the gut and whether the person is in the vertical position or the horizontal position but there are certain organs such as the gallbladder and the liver which we can mark in because they're fairly constant in position now the fundus of the gallbladder comes in contact with the anterior abdominal wall opposite the tip of the right ninth costal cartilage. In other words, where the linear semilunaris crosses the costal margin. And I'll just indicate the position there of the gallbladder. Now quite clearly as the patient takes a deep breath and the diaphragm descends and the liver descends with it, the fundus of the gallbladder would come down and would impinge upon the examining fingers. Now we can place in the position of the liver. In the adult, the liver, the lower margin of the liver, in a well-developed individual with thick abdominal muscles, well-developed muscles, is difficult to palpate. But in a thin individual with fairly thin muscles, if you ask the patient to take a deep breath, would you take a deep breath, you can feel the lower margin of the liver come down. It's just about a finger's breadth beneath the costal margin and I'll indicate its position in that manner there coming down, the gallbladder just projecting or just at the level of the lower margin of the gallbladder there. The kidneys are lying on the posterior abdominal wall. The left kidney is high up because of the the small left lobe of the liver and the uh, the right kidney tends to be lower because of the large size of the right lobe of the liver. The only kidney that can be felt, which is normal, is the right kidney. And here you put your hand behind the patient's back, you put your hand in front here, and you ask him to take a deep breath. Breathe in, and if the person has a thin abdominal musculature, you can very often feel the lower pole of the right kidney coming down between the examining hands. On this side, it is impossible to feel the uh, normal right kidney, the left kidney. The spleen cannot be palpated through the anterior abdominal wall in the adult. In the newborn baby the lower pole of the spleen often can be just palpated at the level of the subcostal margin. Now what I thought we would do is build up the anterior abdominal wall on the blackboard with colored chalks. Uh, First of all we want to just have the outline of the blackboard, of the, uh, the anterior abdominal wall, putting in the costal margin here and the typhoid process and the, indicating the position of the inguinal ligament there and the umbilicus. Now, we must remember that the structure of the anterior abdominal wall is such, it's rather like a, a meat sandwich in that the skin is the outer part of the bread, the muscle of the anterior abdominal wall is the meat and lining the abdominal wall is the inner bread or the peritoneum and supplying the whole sandwich are the intercostal muscles and uh, intercostal nerves as they come round and leave the uh, thoracic wall and come into the abdominal wall now I'm going to indicate the position uh, of the first intercostal nerve coming round this is the anterior ramus of uh, the seventh thoracic nerve uh, it comes around in the intercostal spaces and leaves the 7th intercostal space by going underneath the costal cartilage and supplies the skin of the uh, epigastric region. So this is 7, and then the next one I'll put in is lower down, and the one that one should always remember, it's the 10th intercostal nerve coming round and supplying the region of the umbilicus. So that here then we have 8, and here 9, and then below this level we have coming around and sweeping up in that fashion the eleventh, and then the subcostal nerve, twelve, and lastly, down here, the first lumbar anterior, ramus, is represented by two nerves, the iliohypogastric and the ilioingual nerves. So then, the seventh thoracic nerve supplies a dermatome here, eight, nine, the tenth, Thoracic nerve supplies the region of the umbilicus, sweeping down as a dermatome in this region, then the 11th, then the subcostal nerve, and then the first lumbar dermatome is supplied by the uh, iliohypogastric and uh, the ilioingral nerves. Now we've realized that these nerves supply the skin, the muscles of the abdominal wall, and the lining peritoneum. But when one experiences pain, in the viscera, due to disease which is located to the viscera, the pain is not immediately felt on the anterior abdominal wall directly. It is referred to the anterior abdominal wall, and the afferents pass up from the viscera, up through the splanchnic nerves, to the appropriate level, and then is referred down onto the skin of the anterior abdominal wall. Now, I'll give you some idea what I mean. We can indicate here the region where pain from the stomach is referred, the epigastric region. And this region here, in the region of the umbilicus, we have the small intestine. And to give an example, appendicitis, in the early stages where the inflammation is localized to the organ, the appendix, pain is first felt in the region of the umbilicus. And then down here there's a, a sort of ovoid area where the large bowel refers its pain, and just above the symphysis pubis, we have a region uh, where uh, the bladder is re- the pain is referred. Well now, I'd like to go over to uh, the center of the board here, and uh, give again the outline uh, of the anterior abdominal wall, uh, putting in the costal margin, the Freud process, the region of the Ingleville ligament, and the umbilicus, and talk briefly about the arterial supply. Uh, to the skin and the muscles of the anti-abdominal wall. Coming round from the intercostal spaces, uh, we have uh, intercostal arteries, uh, which come through underneath the costal margin, and coming round from the side, we have four lumbar arteries uh, coming off the abdominal aorta and coming round in in between the layers of the abdominal musculature. Well now, if we consider the blood supply coming up from below, we have, from the femoral artery, uh, the superficial circumflex iliac artery which comes up to the anterior superior iliac spine region and we have coming up towards the uh, umbilicus, uh, the superficial epigastric artery and coming up towards the midline, above the symphysis pubis, the superficial external pudendal and we mustn't forget that deep down in the anterior abdominal wall, above the inguinal ligament we have here the deep circumflex iliac artery, a branch of the uh, external iliac artery. Well now supplying the skin and the muscles in the midline we have coming down uh, from above uh, we have the internal thoracic artery branch of the subclavian artery which di- bifurcates in the uh, sixth intercostal space into the musculophrenic and the superepigastric artery and the superepigastric artery enters the abdominal wall by coming down between the sternal and costal origins of the diaphragm and so it enters the upper part of the rectus sheath and passes down on either side, one on either side, toward the umbilicus, the superior epigastric artery. Coming up from the external iliac artery and medial to the deep inguinal ring, we have the inferior epigastric artery and this enters the rectus sheath and anastomoses with the superior uh, epigastric artery. So you can see that the blood supply to the anterior abdominal wall is profuse and uh, there are a large number of arteries coming both from be- above and from below, and from the lateral side. Now let's consider on the other side of the same uh, diagram uh, the venous drainage. We have uh, intercostal veins which are going back into the azygos system. We have here lumbar veins uh, going back into the inferior vena cava. And we have coming down here to drain into the great saphenous vein the superficial uh, external pudendal, the superficial epigastric, and uh, the superficial uh, circumflex iliac. We also have the deep circumflex iliac vein draining down into the external iliac vein. Now lying in the rectus sheath, we have running up here the superior uh, epigastric vein which goes into the uh, internal thoracic vein, and so drains up to the subclavian vein. And down here, we have the inferior pigastric vein, which drains down into the external iliac vein. So we have, then, contributions uh, from which drain into the superior vena cava uh, and the inferior vena cava the lumbar veins going to the imperial vena cava and, of course, the inferior vein ultimately going into the inferior vena cava by the external iliac vein. And so it's not surprising, then, uh, that these veins would become enlarged if the superior vena cava was blocked or the inferior vena cava was blocked. Now, in the region of the umbilicus, we mustn't forget the presence of small veins which are coming up from the left branch of the portal vein in the falciform ligament these small veins lying in the phosphiform ligament are known as the para veins and they become particularly important in cases of cirrhosis of the liver when the normal portal venous circulation is blocked and the blood, in order to get into the systemic circulation, is forced to go through the portal systemic anastomoses, and one of these anastomoses is through these para veins so these veins can become enormously enlarged and radiate out from the umbilicus and this gives rise to the clinical condition which is known as the caput medusae. The blood is literally welling up from the interior of the abdomen out and passing out into the lumbar and uh, other veins in this region. Now, the last drawing across here, I'm going to indicate uh, the lymphatic drainage. And I just indicate the costal margin again, the umbilicus, and the inguinal ligaments. I think we should realize that there is a watershed of lymph at the level of the umbilicus. And i just indicate that in this fashion. The lymph from the skin and superficial fascia above this line drains up into the pectoral lymph nodes. The lymph nodes that can be felt uh, against the posterior surface of the lower margin of the pectoralis major. Here up in the axilla, the pectoral lymph nodes and below this line, the lymphatic drainage passes downwards into the horizontal group of superficial inguinal nodes. If we were to turn the abdomen round, we would see that this line corresponded with the upper part of the iliac crests, so that the lymph from behind here goes down and round into the uh, inguinal region, and above this line on the back passes up to the posterior axillary lymph nodes. Well, now I'd like to consider the superficial fascia of the anterior abdominal wall, and we'll consider it by means of a, a sagittal section. Here I'll indicate the body of the pubis, and here I'll indicate the skin of the anterior abdominal wall coming down onto the root of the penis, and then coming around here, the skin of the scrotum, and then going off towards the uh, anus and then here I'll show the perineal membrane and the perineal layer of pelvic fascia forming the urogenital diaphragm. Now the superficial fascia of the anterior abdominal wall the most superficial part of it is fatty and this is sometimes referred to as the fascia of camper. It passes down and thins out over the penis and then when it comes into the region of the scrotum the fat is replaced by muscle and this smooth muscle is referred to as the DARTOS muscle. This DARTOS muscle is innervated by the sympathetic and is responsible for the rugosity of the skin of the scrotum. Beneath the fatty layer a superficial fascia is the membranous layer of superficial fascia, and I'll indicate that in blue. It passes down and forms a sheath uh, for the penis or clitoris, and then runs around inside uh, the wall of the scrotum, and finally is tethered to the posterior margin of the urogenital diaphragm. Now, this is referred to here as the fascia of scarpa, that the name is changed when it passes round the scrotum and is known as the fascia of Colles. Now the clinical importance of this fascia is that should the patient be unfortunate enough to have a ruptured urethra, urine would extravasate round the wall of the scrotum and then up onto the anterior abdominal wall. You may well be asking what happens to this fascia further up. The fascia of camper just becomes the fatty superficial fascia of the chest wall, and the fascia of scarpa just thins out and becomes lost on the thoracic wall. Below, over the thighs, the fat becomes continuous with the fatty layer of the skin of the thigh, whereas the membranous layer, the fascia of scarpa, becomes united with the deep fascia of the thigh about a finger's breadth below the inguinal ligament. And this can be shown diagrammatically in this way. Here's the aponeurosis of the external oblique, ending below as the rounded margin known as the inguinal ligament. Here's the deep fascia of the thigh, and here's this fascia scarpa coming down and closing off the area beneath it. In other words, urine, although it can extravasate up here, cannot pass down into the thigh. The fatty layer just comes on down onto the front of the thigh, and across the skin, comes off the anterior abdominal wall onto the front of the thigh. So this is the importance of the superficial fascia. Now is there a deep fascia on the anterior abdominal wall? Yes, there's a very thin layer of areolar tissue, but no uh, obvious layer that you can dissect. We have considered the superficial fascia of the anterior abdominal wall, and now I'd like to turn to uh, the oblique muscles on the anterolateral abdominal wall. Uh, let us indicate the uh, midline anteriorly in this fashion, and the posterior part of the body in this fashion, and then indicate the costal post- margin in this way, uh, making this the 7th and the 8th. So you got the 10th costal cartilage coming down here, the ninth costal cartilage and so on, and then we can indicate here the ziphoid process projecting downwards. Now in the lower part of the diagram we'll indicate the hyoid uh, crest, Uh, anterior superior iliac spine, anterior inferior iliac spine and then the superior ramus of the pubis with the pubic tubercle at that point. And then just for sake of completeness we can uh, indicate the uh, acetabulum there. Now the uh, external oblique muscle of the abdomen arises from the outer surface of the lower eight ribs. The fibers interdigitating Uh, with those of the serratus anterior, and so we have an arrangement something like this, where the dilatations come off the outer surfaces of the ribs and the muscle fibers pass downwards and forwards into the anterior abdominal wall. Now the actual muscular part of the external oblique occupies an area something like this, and then sweeps back so that all this area here is filled in by the fibers. You notice the fibers pass downwards and forwards into the abdomen, leaving a posterior free margin. Now, how is this muscle inserted? The lowest fibers are inserted into the outer lip of the iliac crest, coming down in this way, as far as the anterior superior iliac spine. From there onwards, the fibres give way uh, to an aponeurosis, and the aponeurosis, the fibres of the aponeurosis, extend downwards and forwards until we get to the anterior superior ilex spine, and here the lower edge is rolled and thickened, and extends from the, level, from the point here, the anterior superior ilex spine, down as far as the pubic tubercle, and this forms the inguinal ligament. So here then we have the fibres coming in in this way, and when they reach the midline, they interdigitate with the fibers of the opposite side and form a thickened band which extends downwards from the ziphoid process down as far as the symphysis pubis. And this is the important uh, linear alba. Now, we must not forget this very important area here. There is a triangular opening uh, in the apneurosis of the external oblique known as the superficial inguinal ring. So then, here is the muscle, the external oblique, with a free posterior margin, muscular fibers, downwards and forwards, an aponeurosis going into the linear alba, the thickened lower margin forming the inguinal ligament, and an opening in the aponeurosis, called the superficial inguinal ring. Now, I'd like to, on a smaller diagram, just consider this uh, inguinal ligament for a moment. If we were to take a section, through this area, we would see the aponeurosis the external oblique coming down and then this lower margin is rolled backwards and thickened uh, to form uh, the inguinal ligament. Now underneath this muscle is the internal oblique. So I'm going to move across to make another diagram alongside this of showing the origin and insertion of the internal oblique muscle. Once again, I'll indicate the anterior abdominal wall uh, in the midline, something like this, and the posterior wall, something like this, and here is the costal margin coming down, and the other costal cartilages and ribs above that level, and here's the sephoid process, and below here, we can indicate the iliac crest, the anterior superior spine, the anterior inferior spine, and the superior ramus of the pubis, and the pubic tubercle, And here, just to show the position, uh, the acetabulum. Now, the fibers of the internal oblique uh, pass upwards and forwards, and uh, they arise from the uh, iliac crest and from the lumbar fascia. Now, the lumbar fascia merely collects this muscle to the lumbar vertebrae posteriorly and fills in this interval between the costal margin and the iliac crest. And the fibers are passing up in this direction and they're going to be inserted into the lower three uh, ribs in this sort of manner. And when the origin reaches the uh, point of the anterior superioric spine we mustn't forget that here we have the uh, inguinal ligament and we find that the fibers of the internal oblique arise from the lateral half or lateral two-thirds of that uh, ligament and here they are coming off and then they're beginning to arch over in this way uh, as I've indicated. Now from this point onwards uh, the fibers continue as the anapneurosis And the aponeurosis extends towards the midline and fuses uh, with the linear alba. The linear alba, you remember, was that uh, thickened fibrous band which extended down from the ziphoid process, from the ziphoid process, down to the symphysis pubis. The difference between these two muscles is that the aponeurosis here of the internal oblique splits down a line which is lateral to the rectus abdominis. One part of the aponeurosis going deep to the rectus abdominis, and another part going superficially to help to form uh, the rectus sheath. At the level of the anterior superior ilex spine, however, this splitting ceases, and the entire aponeurosis comes forwards uh, to lie in front of the rectus abdominis. So here we have the fibers arching over and coming down and forming a tendon, which is going to join up, as we shall see in a moment, with the tendon of the transversus abdominis, to form the conjoint tendon, which is inserted into the pubic crest. So then, the internal oblique differs from the external oblique, in that its posterior margin is attached to the lumbar vertebrae by the lumbar fascia. The fibres run upwards and forwards. They arise from this lumbar fascia, from the iliac crest, from the lateral half or two-thirds of the inguinal ligament and they are inserted into the lower three ribs and by this aponeurosis which goes forwards to the linear elbow. The lower fibers arch downwards and join with those of the transverse abdominis to form the conjoint tendon which is attached to the pubic crest. We must never forget that the aponeurosis of the internal oblique when it reaches the region of the lateral margin of the rectus abdominis, splits so that one part passes deep the rectus abdominis and one part passes superficially. This arrangement takes place downwards as far as the level of the anterior superior iliac spine and from that downwards the entire aponeurosis of the internal oblique passes anterior to the rectus abdominis.